cool. Um, thanks for, <laughs> for letting me speak. I was not expecting to be the main speaker. I was like, ah, just share for about 10 minutes and then, you know, just kind of kick back and, and listen to Stacy. But, you know, God had other plans. So here I am. Uh, I, was, I was taught, you know, never turn down an AA request. You suit up and show up. I mean, I never turned down a drink. So uh, why would I turn down an AA request? Um, you know, this is kind of this actual time. I start to get a little, a little sentimental. I, I first got sober in, in San Diego and I remember crash landing into a meeting on a Sunday night around 8.30. And so, you know, obviously the connection to California and, and this is about that time when I came into my very first meeting and I'm able to just connect with how broken and how sad and scared I was when I came in, like trying to constantly live this double life of, of drinking and, and enhancing my drinking with other things and, and being this citizen Monday through Friday. So I'm really grateful to be of service and I'm so grateful for the guy that was my first sponsor who spent two minutes of his time after the meeting to reach out to me and uh, give me his number who uh, he eventually became my very first sponsor. So I'm very, very grateful for that. I don't know that I would be here if it wasn't for him uh, taking the time to do that. So let's see uh, what happened, what it was like and what it's like now. So we were talking a little bit before the meeting started. I actually, I'm a Texas native. I grew up in a city called Killeen. Uh, it's right near a big army base, Fort Hood. And um, yeah, I grew born and raised there. My dad was in the military. He did about 21 years in the army. Uh, met my mom in Japan when he was stationed there. And then when they got stationed in Fort Hood in 65, they bought a house and they never left. So they're still there today. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about my family of origin and, and kind of really like me as this really young alcoholic. I feel, I think through Alcoholics Anonymous, I've learned that I very much am, I was born an alcoholic. Um, I don't know at what point in my drinking career that I like crossed the line and, and I became more dependent on alcohol, but I definitely know that from a very, very young age, I always felt very, very different. And I had, I was very different. I had black and white thinking. Uh, and I mean, I remember when I was a little kid, I think I was maybe four or five and there was this carnival in town and I was begging my dad to like, let me get on this merry-go-round carousel with all the, you know, brightly colored horses kind of bobbing up and down. It just looked like it was so amazing. I begged him to get on the ride. I got on the ride and immediately I was like, this is so boring. I can't wait for it to stop. I need to get off this ride now. So I literally like jumped off the horse, <laughs> jumped onto the ground. And my dad was like, what are you doing? Like, you have to wait for the ride to stop. And my black and white thinking, even at that young age was like, if it's fun, I'm all in. If it's boring, I'm out. Uh, and, I, and I definitely drank the same way too. But for me, I, so I, my dad is African-American. My mother is Japanese. So I always... I always, I felt different because I feel like I was born an alcoholic, but then with that being my family structure, it, we were just kind of different. And granted, we're in a, a, a military town, so there are a lot of folks from many different cultures all over. But I, I guess for me, I just felt very different. Uh, my dad, uh, you know, bless his heart, definitely an alcoholic. I didn't realize that until I came into sobriety and was in a therapy session where I learned more about his drinking. I just thought, hey, 
dad goes to the VFW, he goes out and has drinks with his friends, and then he pulls the car in the, in the driveway and he kind of sleeps it off. I just thought that's just what dad does. So I had no idea that that was alcoholism. Uh, my mom is a beautiful codependent and uh, there was a lot of dysfunction in the house. And really, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was a good presenter. This was like, if everything looks good on the outside, my hair is combed and my clothes are pressed and the car is waxed and shiny, if I can manage how you see me, then everything is good. I may be spiritually and emotionally and financially bankrupt, but as long as I'm presenting that image, uh, then everything is okay. So that was something that I had to really, Alcoholics Anonymous still helps me with that today. I'm always trying to manipulate people so I can get you to do what I want you to do, whether it's be nice to me or buy me a drink when I was drinking. So kind of growing up in that environment, I always felt very different. And I, I had my very first experience being mad at God without even realizing it. So <clears throat> in the military, whenever you want to get married, you have to submit, you have to get approval to do that. So it's 1962, interracial marriage was not legal, but being in the military, you could do that. So I remember my dad telling me this story where he wanted to marry my mom my mother is a Buddhist. She's, she doesn't identify as Christian. She's a Buddhist. She's from another country. And my dad told me, so you kind of have this like, I don't know, like this manila folder with, I don't know, this request to get married and you have to route it to all of these different people in order to approve it. And so my dad took it to his, like his first sergeant and then his executive officer and his commanding officer. So they all signed off on it. And then he took it to the chaplain because his chaplain told him, hey guy, if you had brought this to me first because your wife isn't a Christian, I would not have signed off on this marriage. So even as a little kid, I was so pissed at the idea that one person had the ability to completely keep, stop my family from even existing. So I already have a resentment with God and, 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 and Christianity, which obviously that has changed from coming into the program, but it really upset me. I felt like, I feel like I'm already a different person because I'm an alcoholic as a little guy and I don't really know what that is because it's my thinking. I'm not throwing back 40 ounces and martinis when I'm four, but my alcoholic brain was definitely alive and, and well. And I feel like they're my parents, two people that have come together in a very terrible time uh, in our, well, I mean, just in an illegal time. And there's someone that's negating their marriage and telling them that it's not going to work. Um, and to that end, they've actually been married for 58 years. So the chaplain was wrong. So, um, I'm this mixed race kid. I feel very different. Um, I really started to, uh, <clears throat> I really started to kind of come to know who I was definitely in adolescence when I was 12. There's this time that, uh, me and some of the neighborhood kids during the summer, we would go to like, you know, 7-Eleven or Mickey's or whatever, or all this, these kids between like 11 and 13. And we would go to like the magazine rack in the very back. And there's all these, you know, car magazines and you know, whatever is there. But of course, curious little, you know, prepubescent minds, we were, were trying to like grab some pornography. So the oldest kid that's in the group, we're, you know, we're the little ones, the younger ones are the lookout to make sure that the clerk doesn't see us. And so the oldest one kind of grabs a magazine from the top shelf, 
and then he like puts it in a like a car and driver magazine or a motor trend magazine and it's just i think it's like three or four of us boys and all the boys are like mesmerized by these pictures of these women and they're just like oh my god that's so amazing oh that's great and i'm like oh what is that <laughs> and they kind of look at me like that's not the right response so then i realize I already feel very different. And now I'm coming to terms with my sexuality as being gay. So um, that was a lot to deal with. It's, it's a lot to feel different, physically look different. And now here's kind of like another strike against me, if you will. And uh, so when I was 16, that's when I really, that's when I started hooking up was when I was 16, but that's really when I started binge drinking. Um, and just that typical horrible crap that teenagers drink, Mad Dog 2020, Cisco, just uh, Old English 400, just nasty stuff. But I was, I couldn't, I didn't have any tools to deal with life. I didn't have anyone to talk to. <clears throat> you know, my parents, I couldn't talk to my parents about anything that I was feeling because they were very stainless steel and they, I had to behave in a certain way. I had to perform in a certain way because my behavior reflected their parenting. So I really didn't have anyone that I could talk to or confide in with the things that I was feeling about race or uh, sexual orientation, none of that. And, and alcohol at that time worked. It blotted out my conscience, my consciousness, I didn't even have to worry about any of those things, those pressures that I had on me. Um, but everything kind of came to a head when I was 16. Uh, uh, just a laundry list of stuff happening in the house, and I won't go into, into everything. But with me, lots of sexual acting out, getting arrested as a minor a couple of times, starting my alcoholism, and, and really being gay was, uh, was, too, it was too much for me to handle. So I said, well, this, it's time to check out. I was not dealt a fair hand. It's time for me to leave the earth. And this was my first positive God experience. I had no idea at the time. So 16, um, lunchtime, sophomore in high school. I go into the, the library in high school in the very, very far, far back. And I'm writing out this plan, not a note yet, but a plan for what I'm going to do. Because I'm going to, that night, I'm going to, commit suicide. My parents uh, at the time owned a nightclub. They left for the nightclub around eight o'clock and they didn't get home until around three. And that was also kind of part of the tension in my mind. They were arguing and fighting a lot. So I just thought everything is, everything in my world is screwed up. It's time for the, the master exit plan. And uh, so I'm sitting down in the library and I'm writing everything out. And I'm, and I'm a little, <laughs> I'm a little dramatic. So I, I go through the books and I, I found a book from uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on death and dying because I wanted to know what all my friends and family were going to experience. So I've got this book and I have a you know, notebook paper and I'm writing out my plan. And all of a sudden, my two best friends, and we've, we've still been, we are still connected today since 1985, they come in out of nowhere. What are you doing? What are you, what are you, what are you you're, we're supposed to be at lunch. We're sophomores in high school. We're no longer freshmen. You're hiding in the library. This is not acceptable. And they just kind of yanked me out of the library. And I never went back to the idea of suicide. So that was really my first God moment was with those two people. Um, then uh, 
just kind of progressing things here. I knew that I couldn't live in Colleen. Colleen, there was just nothing there. There's nothing there. I knew I was gay. I was starting to get into trouble and I was really suffocating. So for me, I said, well, I'm starting to get into trouble. I need to get out of this small town. What's my exit plan? And I had this grand plan of going to college and I presented it to my parents and they were like, we don't, I mean, this is great. We want you to go to school. We want you to be the first person in our family to, to, to graduate from college, but we can't support that financially. So I said, well, I need to do something different. And kind of through a series of events with a, a friend of mine that I ran track and cross country with, he just said, hey, you know, I don't know what my brother does, but my brother's in the Marines. He has a really cool uniform. He lives in Southern California and he drives a Mustang GT. And at 16 years old, that's all I needed. I wanna get the hell up out of Colleen. I want a cool car and I wanna live in California. So I enlisted and my parents were kind of like, you're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna join the Marines? I was like, yes, I'm ready. And they're like, okay. So uh, I go off, I join the Marines and that was my first geographic. I thought, I don't wanna be gay. I don't wanna be getting arrested. Everything that I feel like was broken inside of me, that was my first solution. I'll do a geographic, I'll move, I'll get out of Texas, I'll join the military. I mean, look at those guys on the billboards. Look at how awesome they look. The, Mil the Marine Corps specifically has to fix me. And little did I know, that's where my alcoholism really took off. I had no idea. Um, so I joined the Marines, I was stationed in Camp Pendleton for a couple of years. Um, my alcoholism, I wasn't starting to drink that much yet, but I was definitely acting out in many, many different ways. And it was like this continuation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, sometimes involving alcohol, sometimes not. But my behavior was very, I would show up to work on time, shine boots, uniform pressed. And then on the weekends, especially at night, I would just be out all night just running amok, doing lots and lots of things uh, in places where I, seeking out lower companions uh, as a lower companion. Um, I was in my first relationship when I was 19. Uh, first time ever, never dated in high school, never dated in middle school. I was 19, he was 50. <laughs> um, he was a big time swindler and saw this young 19 year old kid that really needed some love and attention. He provided it, uh, but also he kind of, he kind of just stole my, <laughs> he, he kind of just robbed me. Like I, I had good credit and we had an apartment together and we got all this stuff together under my name. And um, we were together for about nine months. And then I got orders to go to Okinawa, Japan, which I was excited about because that's where my mother's from. So he kind of told me, hey, you know, we will, uh, I'll, I'll make sure that I take care of all of your bills while you're there in Okinawa, you're young. And then if you decide that you want to get out, you'll come back here, we'll move to Austin, you'll go to UT like you wanted to, and then that'll be that. Well, that didn't happen. Um, but there actually was a God moment. In his shadiness, there was a God moment. So when you get a credit card and you're young and you, you have an an address. I put my parents' address on the credit card, my JCPenney's credit card. And so um, 
this was, gosh, 1990, between 94 and 96. So there's no Facebook, no texting, none of that. It's just letters. And so my dad wrote me a letter and he's like, hey, um, hope Okinawa was great, blah, blah, blah. But one, why are you not paying your bills on time? I got a, this credit card, this delinquent notice from JCPenney. And two, who was Ron Moore? And I was like, oh, fuck. You know, um, that was a guy I was dating. So in all that fear, that fear of rejection from my parents that I thought I was going to face, it, it really pushed me to come out. And not only did that letter push me to come out because I wanted to be honest with them, I thought that if I were, I'm struggling with my sexuality and thinking if I'm going to be gay, I'm going to be gay in Southern California. I'm not going to be gay in Japan, but little did I know once I got to the island of Okinawa, that is truly where I found a huge group of gay and lesbian service members in all branches of the service. Um, and we all got drunk and we all partied hard and we all lived kind of in secret. So kind of this combination of the delinquency letter getting to my parents and me meeting this great tribe of people helped me come out. But through all of that, I was drinking a lot. Um, but I still kind of had that, that discipline from the military where things hadn't gotten that crazy yet. Um, yet, but that's coming. So I come out to my family, they accept me. Some of my friends back home didn't. And that's okay. Um, it was hurtful, but uh, you know, still all the while I'm, I'm drinking and just kind of moving ahead. So, uh, gosh, where are we on time? Let's see. After I get out of the, so 22 years old, I come out of the closet. <laughs> 23, um, I actually, with this group of, of gays and lesbians that I met in Okinawa, I became friends with, uh, with this many lesbians, but this one in particular. And kind of at some drunken party, she's like, oh, we would make really great kids. And I'm like, uh, you're drunk. We're not gonna have kids. Because in my mind, if you're gay, this is your path. It looks like this. And if you're straight, your path looks like this. I never thought that the two could kind of intersect at all. So 22, I come out. My parents are like, okay, our kid is gay. 23 my first son is born. <laughs> so, um, and it wasn't a drunken one night stand. It was a very thought out, planned, year long discussion connecting with, with this woman. And, and we had uh, our son through in vitro fertilization. So um, a lot of change happening all the while, while I'm still drinking and my alcoholism is still climbing. So, and this is an important part of the story because this is really where things start to hit rock bottom. So we agreed that she would be his primary caregiver <clears throat> and he would primarily live with her. Uh, she was still on active duty, I had gotten out, and we moved back to California. So we actually lived in Orange County. We were in, she was stationed at El Toro at the time, which is since closed, it's a, um, the Marine Corps base that's closed, but we're living in Irvine. And then I had a job in Newport Beach uh, while we lived in Oceanside, so I commuted. And um, after we were there for a couple of years, she got orders to go to Florida. So she took our son with him, which was the agreement all along in the event that she ever moved. And then I, I really fell into the deepest depression of my life. 
and I really turned to alcohol because I thought that alcohol was going to fix it and, and it would keep me from feeling the feelings that I felt, which was utter sadness and complete depression. The alcohol stopped working. Uh, I, I tried it as best as I could. Alcohol stopped working and I thought, well, I can turn to other things as well. I've always been a goody two-shoes. I've never tried them. So I used other things to enhance my drinking. And that really started to change the game. Um, the people, places, and things get very different when uh, enhancements are part of the drinking game. And um, years and years of that, I, I finally realized that I needed to, um, kind of through the help of some, uh, some local support systems down in, in San Diego, they started to plant the idea that maybe my drinking was a problem. Maybe my life was becoming a little bit more unmanageable. And it, it absolutely was. The, with uh, cars being repossessed, I was just in financial ruin and broke all the time. Uh, I never showed up for my commitments, didn't show up to work. You know, all of that, that first step nonsense that everyone goes through, I definitely went through in spades for years. So, I come into my first meeting, like I said, on a Sunday night. <clears throat> it was at the Live and Let Live Milano Club uh, there in San Diego. And uh, I was broken. Alcohol had really, I had painted myself into a corner where I thought that I could lead this double life, but I couldn't anymore. So I literally just sit in the back row of this meeting. I'm slumped down. I don't even know really what the hell I'm doing there, but I know that I can't continue to do what I'm doing. It's just too painful. This guy reaches out to me. He's like, hey, here's my number. If you don't want to drink again, you don't have to. And that was kind of the start of me being in recovery. Uh, and one of the beautiful things about him is he kind of was like my, like that old school movie, The Karate Kid that came out in the 80s. He was my Mr. Miyagi because he would, he would give me all these suggestions of things to do, and, it, and none of it made any sense. First one was, I want you to call me every day. I was like, I don't call anybody every day. He's like, if you want what I have, the way that I sponsor, you, you call me every day. So I made a, an effort to call him as best as I could, if this was either on my cell phone or if I was out of minutes, which was usually the case, I would run and use an old school payphone to call him every day. So I called him every day. He taught me to, whenever I was in a meeting, uh, if I feel inspired to share, I share. He taught me how to you know, thank the chairperson, thank the leader. He taught me how to show up to a meeting 15 minutes early and help with the chairs or the coffee or anything I need to help out with. I need to be of service right away. Um, after the meeting, 15 minutes, uh, after, put chairs away, clean up, do whatever it is that, that needs to be done. That's what I need to do. And he also taught me to shake the hand or meet three people that I've never met. Introduce yourself to three alcoholics. And I'm like, I don't understand why I'm going through all this crap. I just want to stop drinking and I want to stop doing all these other things. And then he was retired and I was still working at the time. So Monday through Thursday was pretty easy, uh, but the weekends were not. And I would spend time with him at his apartment and he would like cook all these meals and we'd go through the big book and then we'd take his dog for a walk and we'd go to Costco. And I'm like, 
why am I doing all this crap with this old guy? I don't want to freaking go to Costco. I don't want to walk your stupid dog. I get the big book. I know that's a thing. So like, let's do that thing. But this cooking and all this nonsense, I don't need that. Well, what he was showing me how to do is he was showing me how to live my life sober, how to go to the store and, and buy food and take care of myself and make meals for myself and just live this normal life. Because when I had any unstructured time, I was getting drunk. There was no doubt about it. There's no way that I could, that was no longer an option for me. He was my first sponsor and moved away. My second sponsor, um, he... <laughs> He's still in San Diego today. And he, he was the one who told me the truth, unvarnished. And he was more concerned about saving my life than my feel, hurting my feelings. And this time, I had periods of sobriety, maybe 30 days, 90 days, and I would kind of hop out and come back in. Um, definitely the beginning of my pattern as the jaywalker, like that story in the big book where you think, why would someone continue to go back and drink, get an arm broken, get sober, go back, jaywalk again, get a leg broken. I did that for years. Um, so when I'm talking to uh, my second sponsor, Don, I'm like, I was, I was kind of being a brat in a meeting. Um, and someone in the meeting had shared, well, you know, time isn't a tool to stay sober. You have to work the steps and be of service and, and sponsor people. You know, time is not a tool. And I think at the time, Don was about 20 years sober. And so I kind of come up to him after a meeting. I'm like, see, Don, time isn't a tool. You have to work the steps. I'm trying to tell an old timer this, and I have maybe two weeks sober. You have to work the steps. You have to be of service, make coffee. And he says, well, Marcus, if you think time isn't a big deal, why don't you try getting some time first? And I was like, oh, he came from my throat. <laughs> But it was so true. And I, and I needed people to tell me the truth about myself when my ego was getting too big, especially when I had, you know, a whisper of sobriety. So he helped me grow a lot. And I had two and a half years of sobriety. And then I relapsed because I always wanted to go back to the barbershop. I always wanted to see the, those lower companions. I need to know what they're doing. And every time I saw about those lower companions, I would drink again. So two and a half years, sought out those lower companions, drank again, came back and had another two and a half year stint. And then at this time, at the, my second two and a half year mark, it was time for me to come back home. No, I did a geographic, I ran away from home. I thought I could run away from my alcoholism, but I brought it with me. And I wanted to spend some more time and reconnect with my parents. No, by this time, I had suited up, I had shown up, I had made amends to them, and it was just time. I just felt moved to do it, my higher power, not me. So I come back to Texas, and it all just happened like that. I had the thought, I talked to my manager. A month later, I was back in Texas. Um, and it was a wonderful thing being able to reconnect with my parents. But all that stuff that happened, all that childhood stuff, and coming back to Texas, it was a lot. And I also kept seeking those lower companions, like using that as a tool or using that as a way to stay sober. And I remember having two and a half years of sobriety in San Antonio, doing all the right things, had a home group before I moved here, had a sponsor, but I kept operating on self-will. 
and I kept going back to hang out with those people, places, and things. <clears throat> and when I moved back to Texas, I was started this cycle of relapse, and I probably relapsed every 60 to 90 days for five years, which for you newcomers, that is not the way to go. <laughs> do not do that. I don't recommend that at all. Because one, there's no way, there's no guarantee that I'm going to come back. And the scarier part is there's no guarantee that I'm going to come back the same spiritual person. Um, alcohol and other things definitely changed me. I, and it just does. And so who knows if I would even be willing to hear or listen to the message when I came back in. But that was my path. I did that for about five years, constantly going in and out, constantly seeking those lower companions as a lower companion. And I thought, well, I need to get serious. I need to move into sober living. I moved into an Oxford house um, and thinking that that's the safest place for me to be because I know if you relapse, you're out, you're homeless, that it's, it's done. There's not a nego no negotiation about that. So I'm in this Oxford house doing the deal, thinking it's the safest place I could be, but kind of I'm sneaking around. You know, you're only as sick as your secrets. I'm kind of like slinking around trying to connect with these lower companions. And after 13 months, I relapsed again. But this time, there was no safety net. This time, I was actually homeless. So everything that I had, all my clothes, my possessions was in my car, and I had nowhere to go. I had no key to a house. I had no combination to a door lock, nowhere to sleep. And I was scrambling. And uh, I reached out to a member uh, at Lambda here in San Antonio. And he let me stay. And I was kind of working out this deal. Hey, like we could be roommates. And he's just like, you can stay one night and then you've got to go someplace else. So really in desperation, I reached out to this guy who had a sober living. And I'm like, hey, man, I have nowhere to go um and just there just so happens to be a bed there i moved into that sober living i was there for a month and then i moved back into oxford because that's there's more structure in that for me and that's what i needed i finally stayed away from those lower companions those people places and things and just admitted that i was powerless over them every time i relapsed it's always because i'm connecting with them and that's where my sobriety now um really began um, what my sobriety looks like today, oh, gosh, um, everything is vibrant. The life that I always wanted to have, drinking, I have now. But of course, there's no alcohol. Um, I just wanted to have a decent life where I have a little bit of money in the bank, a decent place to live, a decent car, good friends that are you know that are in recovery a connection with my family that's all that i really wanted i never really wanted this extravagant lifestyle i just thought that alcohol had to be a part of it and these lower companions had to be a part of it once i was able to put those two things down and really sit all the way down in alcoholics anonymous and be spiritually obedient where i followed every suggestion that my sponsor had given me and practice these principles in all of my affairs and for me, what that looks like is, I obviously am sober in AA, but I have sobriety in other 12-step programs too, uh, because everything was connected. The same alcoholic Marcus that shows up in AA is the same alcoholic addict that shows up in other 12-step programs where it's more um, kind of process, process addictions.
um, family of origin stuff, uh, sex and relationships. So the other 12-step programs that I worked helped me stay sober. I was really good at getting sober and getting chips, but I wasn't good at staying sober because I couldn't stay away from those people, places, and things until I made myself homeless. And I think it says in the big book, like alcohol had beaten me into a state of reasonableness. I ran out of hustle. I ran out of being cute. I ran out of being slick. Uh, everything that I owned was in my car and it was now time to listen and sit all the way down. So um, what my life looks like today, I tried to stay in the middle of, of Alcoholics Anonymous, have a sponsor. There are uh, men and women that I sponsor. I chair meetings. I have a, a sponsee that's in jail. Um, so I really just follow all the suggestions. There's really nothing new, but every time I invest and put a little bit of time in a service or spend time with a sponsee or my sponsor, it gives me a little bit more added you know, insurance that for me to not pick up the next drink. And it gets me out of this crazy head of mine. Um, a couple of things that I want to share, just kind of some God moments. Uh, before I got, before I start, got sober in, in San Diego, I was on a, I went through this outpatient program <clears throat> and I was really pissed off and upset because I knew that my life was starting to get unmanageable and I had to take the bus because I didn't have enough money to pay for my car registration and and you know, in California, like if you have any tickets, they check that you can't. <laughs> so you got to make sure that everything is has a clean bill of health in order for you to get your registration and all that. And I had some stuff to take care of. So I'm on the bus, I'm in this outpatient program. So I'm on paper. So I have to go to a certain number of meetings a week. And I went to this meeting and uh, in San Diego, it was kind of sitting out of this back patio of this coffee house. And I'm, I'm chain smoking my Marlboro Reds and I'm drinking my coffee. And I see this woman who is just extremely happy. She's happy. She's loud. She's kind of like, she kind of reminded me of um, like Ellie Mae from the Beverly Hillbillies. She was just kind of like, hey, y'all. She was just really kind of loud and gregarious. And I, at that time, I was just like, you're too much. Like, please stay over on the other side of the room. So I go in, I sit down in the meeting and I get my paper signed and there's just one door in and out in this patio area. So this woman that I'm totally repulsed by decides she's going to stand, she's gonna center herself in the doorway and she's gonna give out all these mandatory hugs. And I'm like, hmm, I don't know about all that. I am not here to hug it out with some you know, strange person because I'm guarded, I'm fearful. I grew up in a household that was stainless steel. You don't need emotions. You just need to push through and get things done. And connecting with people is not anything uh, that was not a treat for me. And if you're standing in the middle of the doorway, that is even less of a treat. I don't wanna talk to you. So she's standing in the middle of the doorway. She's absolutely hugging every person as they leave. And I'm trying not to be a jerk and it's my turn so I can get out of this room and get on the bus and go home. And she gives me this big loving hug and I try not to say anything and she can't see my face. So I'm grimacing and I'm just like, Oh, when is this going to be over? She releases me. I leave. 
I get on the bus. About six months later, I ran into her at the Live and Let Live Volano Club. And, and uh, she's like, hey, how's it going? I'm like, hey, like, I'm good. I've got some sobriety under my belt. And the beautiful thing about that moment is that in that moment, she taught me that it was okay for me to let my guard down. And she taught me that Alcoholics Anonymous is about loving the newcomer and loving other members. Page 84, that love and tolerance. I had never felt that. And if any of that was even directed my way, I'm like, nope, I don't want any of that squishy stuff. I don't need that. I just need another drink or something else. And she unconditionally gave me that love when I really, really needed it. So I hugged her again and I told her, I said, you know what? I was not feeling that whole hug situation <laughs> about six months ago. And she's like, I know. That's why I gave you like the longest and the firmest hug because she knew that I needed it. And there's so many situations where Alcoholics Anonymous has people in the program have showed up for me and they really have shown me a lot of love. Um, there was a time where, uh, you know, and, and this is something that I've learned in the program too, especially for those of you that are new or even not so new. Like my alcoholism, this craziness that's in here does not have working hours. It doesn't have bank hours where I'm only going to be crazy between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. And um, it just doesn't work that way, at least not for me. So when I was in this first uh, Oxford house, this sober living, I, I don't want to get into the story, but I, I got into almost a physical altercation with this other guy who was my roommate. You know, I was having these terrible using dreams and we both were just being catty and just snipping at each other. And it escalated into this like 3 a.m. almost throw down, knock down fight. So my understanding is when I'm disturbed, the inventory is mine. But if I'm also disturbed, I need to pick up the phone before I pick up a drink. So I call my sponsor. <laughs> it's 3.15 in the morning. He answers. No, I'm just doing what I'm told. We chat for, I don't know, 35, 40 minutes. And before we sign off, he's like, hey, I just want to make sure that I understand. Uh, you are upset at your roommate because he was eating a bag of chips too loudly in the room. That's why you're, <laughs> that's why you're mad. And I was like, yes, <laughs> that's exactly why I'm mad. It just the idea that sometimes drunk or sober, just unlovable. Like, and, and it's so amazing the amount of, of love and support that I continue to get um, from, from people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, and then there's one other story that I'll share and then I'll, I'll end with this. You know, um, so one of my good friends, uh, okay, so we go back to when I was 16, I'm in the library and uh, my two friends came in, John and Andrea, never went back to thinking about suicide again. So we've been, the three of us have been friends since 1985. We're still very connected. And my friend Andrea still lives in, in Colleen. Uh, Andrea's mother passes away. She'd been ill for a while. And this is, this is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous teaching me to suit, suit up and show up. Because it's a very uncomfortable situation. Um, 
attending a funeral, being there for a friend, suiting up and showing up for her. So um, she you know, sends me the date of, of uh, the date of, of her mother's funeral and the whole itinerary. And I go, drive from San Antonio, get there first thing in the morning. There's like a service at a Catholic church at like 8.30. And um, the first beautiful thing that happened was that the priest or pastor, I, you know, I, terminology, I'm, I'm lost on what he's called. But I always, I think, this is my own crazy as a gay man. I hate going into a Catholic church because I feel like I'm going to burn or they're just going to be like, you sinner. Because <laughs> they're always like the most, I don't know. It just seems like Catholics are very, um, very rigid. And I always get nervous and fearful. But this priest, pastor guy, talks about how he doesn't like people calling themselves Christian because he feels like it's a label that people can affix themselves to, but they don't change their behavior. And he just started to go into this, this talk about love and service and how my friend's mother was all about that, being on the bereavement committee, just love and service. And I'm like, well, I understand love and service and love and tolerance from AA. So that was kind of a beautiful moment that he, where I felt a little less sweaty. <laughs> I feel like my God was like trying to connect me and just tell me that I was gonna be okay. We have that service. We drive down to Pflugerville. Um, and this is more graveside. My friend's mother, um, you know, the ashes are there. We're there to intern her. Um, and we're, we're there. We're having a ceremony. My friend speaks. And there was an invitation for anyone else to speak. And I go. And I, I didn't even, I wasn't planning on saying anything. Kind of like tonight. I wasn't planning on saying much. But I was just moved to get up and talk. And I just, uh, I broke down crying and, and feeling so much emotion around <clears throat> her mother and how loving and kind she was. And, uh, you know, being an alcoholic is, is enough without a solution. Being an alcoholic person of color is kind of a, adds another flavor to it. But adding like being a young gay kid that is scared all the time, uh, especially where in his house is not a great feeling. And spending time with her in her house, she always made me feel loved and she always made me feel safe and supported. So the beautiful thing about Alcoholics Anonymous, in my opinion, is when I suit up and show up and do the right thing, my higher power is going to talk through me and get me through any kind of struggle or anything that's difficult. Um, I had no idea that I had so much emotion and so much appreciation for her. And I can only have that love and respect for someone else because Alcoholics Anonymous gives that to me. Um, if I take a look at the amount of work that I do and the gifts that I receive, which is mostly serenity and peace, it's disparate. I don't do a whole lot of work to deserve all the gifts and the love and the sanity that Alcoholics Anonymous gives me. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm really grateful to be sober. And I hope that if you're new or not so new, um, just know that you never have to drink again. And uh, again, I'm Marcus Alcoholic. I'm really grateful to have uh, 
to let me speak. Thank you for that. And uh, that's all I have. Thank you.